0: Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Every man who really loves America will act and speak in the true spirit of neutrality, which is the spirit of impartiality and fairness and friendliness to all concerned. The people of the United States are drawn from many nations and chiefly from the nations now at war. It is natural and inevitable that there should be the utmost variety of sympathy and desire among them with regard to the issues and circumstances of the conflict. Some will wish one nation, others another, to succeed in the momentous struggle. Such divisions among us would be fatal to our peace of mind and might seriously stand in the way of the proper performance of our duty as the one great nation at peace, the one people holding itself ready to play a part of impartial mediation and speak the counsels of peace and accommodation, not as a partisan, but as a friend. The United States must be neutral in fact as well as in name during these days that are to try men's souls. We must be impartial in thought, as well as action, must put a curb upon our sentiments, as well as upon every transaction that might be construed as a preference of one party to the struggle before another. Woodrow Wilson's Message on Neutrality to the U.S. Congress, August nineteenth, 1914 If Germany won, it would change the course of our civilization and make the United States A military nation. Woodrow Wilson to Edward House, August 30th, 1914. From the beginning, I saw the utter futility of neutrality, the disappointment and heartaches that would flow from its announcement, but we had to stand by our traditional policy of steering clear of European embroilments. Woodrow Wilson, April 1917, in a private conversation to his personal secretary, Joseph Tumulty, shortly after delivering his speech to Congress, asking for a declaration of war. A comfortable myth that Americans continue to embrace is that their government was neutral during the months from August 1914 to April 1917, and only when an aggressive Germany became a threat to the nation's security did a reluctant America take up arms and defense. In reality, America, as manifest in the views and actions, Overt and covert of its political leaders, diplomats, bankers, manufacturers, clergy, and press, the dominant powers that drove the nation and molded its public opinion was distinctly non neutral in spirit. From the first weeks of the war, these forces were nearly universally pro ally. And as the flood of British propaganda enveloped them, their attitudes solidified. Profoundly pro entente himself, Woodrow Wilson nevertheless sought to act as peacemaker, but was unwilling to accept that America's non-neutral actions precluded the role of mediator he sought. Stuart Halsey Ross, Propaganda for War, How the United States Was Conditioned to Fight the Great War of 1914-1918. to 1918. The winner of the 1912 election, Was Woodrow Wilson, known to his close friends as Woodrow Wilson, who garnered many votes with the popular slogan, Wilson, he'll eventually get us into World War I. In America, the prevailing mood was that this was a truly dumb war and we should stay the hell out of it. Just about everybody agreed on this. The public, the press, barnyard animals, even leading political figures. Anybody who even talked about the possibility of the United States getting into this war was considered to be a Cretan. In the presidential election of 1916, both President Woodrow Wilson and the Republican nominee Charles Evans Hughes went around stating in loud, emotion-choked voices that they were definitely by God not going to get the country into the war. So it was clear that the United States had no choice but to get into the war, which in 1917 it did. And a darn good thing, too, because the official title of the war turned out to be The War to End All Wars. Dave Barry. Dave Barry Slept Here, a sort of history of the United States. Howdy, everybody. This is CJ, your guerrilla scholar warrior and renaissance man in the New Dark Age. And finally, 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 we are returning to that wonderful president that you and I just love to hate. And that is, of course, Woodrow Wilson. This being, if I'm not mistaken, part 11 in my ongoing Woodrow Wilson series. So this episode was originally going to be a huge one that was going to cover the entire period of American, quote-unquote, neutrality in regard to World War I. So from the outbreak of the war in the summer of 1914 until the U.S. finally fully officially entered it in April of 1917. However, as I've been working on my notes for this episode in recent weeks and even months... It was starting to get quite unwieldy, and there were not enough things that I was comfortable cutting out that I could get it down to a more manageable size. So ultimately, I decided what I was going to do, and what I am doing is to break that period up into a couple of episodes. So the plan is to have this episode that you're listening to right now cover things kind of pre-Lusitania, pre-Germany submarine warfare, you know, really kicking off in a big way. And then in the next installment, what'll be Woodrow Wilson Part 12, I'm going to go from Germany unleashing the U-boat warfare, and of course the single biggest event there in regards to the United States being the sinking of Lusitania, and from there through the rest of the period of American neutrality, and just how non-neutral the U.S. was, particularly corporate America, and especially The House of Morgan. I may or may not get into that a little bit in this episode, but I'm definitely going to dig into it pretty deeply in part 12 of Woodrow Wilson. So just a few brief updates, and I'll try and keep this relatively short in case you've been wondering what's been going on with me lately. You haven't heard much from me, certainly over the past month or two. And so, yeah, I've continued to have to do, out of financial necessity, a lot of non-DHP related work just to try and keep my family financially afloat, to, you know, barely sort of keep our head above water for the time being. And I've been dealing with that while dealing with my ongoing struggles to recover as much as I can from alcoholism and severe depression. And I feel like my brain has been slowly, painfully slowly, but steadily continuing to regain its capabilities. I'm still nowhere near to where I was, say, in 2019 in terms of my ability to focus, my attention span, my memory, my mental energy, you know, how long I can do high mental exertion work until my brain just taps out. And while dealing with that, as you may recall me mentioning, I think in the last episode, I put out my wife, who has several different chronic health issues. She's had her health flaring up pretty badly in the last couple of months, so we've been dealing with that and had some concern about whether or not she'd be able to keep doing the job she's doing, and if she had to step over to a less demanding job, it would, of course, include probably a significant pay cut, and given the financial situation my family's in at the moment, that would be, I don't even know what we would do. Um, thankfully, for the moment, those problems seem to be abating a little bit. And it seems like, at least for the time being, she'll be able to stay in the job that she's currently in. So that's a little bit of a relief. However, on the other hand, I had a bit of an issue myself over the past couple of weeks. I got sick, and it ended up snowballing and clusterfucking until I was about as sick as I've been in at least a year, if not longer. So it was some sort of respiratory infection. Honestly, felt like a fairly mild cold in the initial stages. I have no idea if it was a COVID variant or not. I don't even care or test for it at this point. My feeling is, if what I'm dealing with feels like a cold, whether it's a typical cold or whether it's the dreaded COVID, I don't really care. But this time, even though I take all kinds of different, you know, vitamins and supplements to help my immune system, this time probably because all of the extreme stress I've been under in recent months and how kind of ragged and tired and constantly sleep-deprived and everything I've been over the past few months. Even though for the first week or so I had it, this felt like a fairly mild cold, It eventually snowballed into some combination of sinus and bronchial infection, and even pink eye caused by the extreme congestion I ended up having. I ended up losing my voice for multiple days, and I ended up developing a bad cough, and I ended up having to go on nuclear antibiotics in addition to pink eye drops. And thankfully, I'm on the mend now, but I'm still not all the way better. At least I have a voice, mostly. I mean, I don't know if you can still hear The sickness in my voice at this point or not. But at least I mostly have a voice. And in addition, at least now I can talk for usually a couple minutes before I start coughing like crazy. Um, a week ago, I would start coughing like crazy usually if I talked for like a sentence or two. So yeah, you will never know because I'll try to hit the mute or pause button in real time as much as I can, and of course I'll edit things out after the fact in post, but you will never know how many times during the recording of this episode I had a coughing fit. So yeah, that's made the last couple of weeks extra difficult for me and basically impossible until today to even think about recording anything for the podcast. But on the plus side, like I said, I seem to be finally on the upswing shaking this illness, thanks to massive doses of antibiotics. And also, as of this recording, I am 250 days without booze. So despite all the extreme stresses and things I've been dealing with in recent months, at the very least, I've managed to stay on the wagon as far as that goes. So anyway, that's what's going on here. And um, as of this recording next week, I will be heading out to Texas to attend Jack Spearco's TSP 23 event at which I will be a speaker. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm kind of running myself ragged between now and then to number one, get this episode done and published if possible before I leave. And number two, kind of prepare my remarks, what I'm going to say when I speak at the event. And of course to, you know, pack up for the trip and take care of all that nuts and bolts stuff of logistics. And I'm sure some of you longer time listeners of the podcast have realized that. Yes, unfortunately this year I won't be doing any DHP Halloween special episodes. I just did not have the time and did not have the capability. Like I said, I was without a voice for like almost two weeks. Basically much of the second half of October. I had no voice and I was coughing like crazy when I did try and, you know, scratchily say something. So yeah, no Halloween episodes for 2023, but I'm going to try to get this Woodrow Wilson episode out before Halloween or by Halloween. And I've got several things in the works, cool DHP stuff to accomplish in November after I get back from Texas. So without further ado, let's jump back into the story of Woodrow Wilson, this time with a focus on the period of alleged American neutrality, particularly the first, say, six months or maybe a little bit more of that, say, the first six months or so. Of World War I raging in Europe and the US not officially a belligerent in the war, allegedly being neutral, but in many ways already starting to take sides, at least as far as the American political and economic elites were concerned. So, for the sake of time, I won't rehash the origins and kind of the outbreak of World War I in Europe in this episode. I've covered this elsewhere to varying degrees, probably most recently, I think a little over a year ago, in DHP episode 236, which I'll definitely link to in the show notes for this episode if you've never listened to that one, or if you have, but it's been a while. And in general, I would say that that episode, DHP episode 236, is a very good companion or compliment to this one you're listening to right now. So again, I would highly recommend, if you've never listened to that one, maybe you should, perhaps even before this episode or, you know, after it. And if it's been a while since you've listened to episode 236, then you may want to go revisit it, because I think it dovetails really well with this episode. But just as a reminder, the two main alliances going into World War I were the Triple Entente, which eventually is going to get known as the Allies, the big players of which were Russia, France, and Britain. And then as the war began to unfold, various other powers and countries, small, medium, and large in size, are going to join up with that side. And then the other side was the Central Powers, the core of which, at least initially, were Germany and the Austrian Empire, also known at the time as Austria-Hungary or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then as the war unfolds, they're going to also accumulate various allies, the most significant of which was probably the Ottoman Empire. But without delving too much into the nitty-gritty details of how the war you know, sparked off and began to unfold... For now, let's just say that I absolutely do not believe that the real truth, the genuine historical facts, the context leading up to World War I, and the outbreak and early stages of the war itself, that the facts just do not fit the British and Allied propaganda narrative, i.e. that Germany bore sole responsibility for the war happening, and that the Allied side or the Entente side initially was just completely innocent of any blame for the war occurring, completely innocent at all. That notion is just bullshit and is not supported by the historical facts of what actually happened. The notion that Germany just sort of randomly decided one day to go to war with... France, Russia, and Britain, for no particular reason other than the Kaiser was a mean asshole and just felt like doing some conquering, and the German people were just a bunch of, you know, bloodthirsty monsters that needed no encouragement or excuses to go slaughter people for fun. This is about as ridiculous, non-factual, and ahistorical as the notion that Russia just sort of randomly decided to invade Ukraine in February of 2022 for absolutely no particular reason other than Vladimir Putin is a mean asshole and Russians are, you know, bloodthirsty barbarians that like to conquer people for fun. The reality is that in virtually every war throughout human history, including World War I and the Russo-Ukraine War, there is a huge amount of of backstory and context leading up to the actual conflict breaking out that is quite complex and in which there's a lot of blame to go around in a lot of directions. Of course, as many of you may know, since if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you're a regular or longtime listener, you probably are a lot more informed about history than the average zombie walking around out there on the street. So you're probably more likely to know, but maybe you just need a reminder, that the First World War broke out in Europe, officially, on July 28th, 1914. Now, like I said, I'm not going to go through all the details of how the war broke out here. That could be a whole episode or, you know, multi-episode miniseries in its own right. And there have been entire books written just about kind of the outbreak of the war, the immediate, you know, leading up to it, and then the early phases of the war itself. But basically, the assassination of Austrian Prince Franz Ferdinand by Serbian terrorists in June of 1914 led to a cascade of events that resulted in the two big alliances of European so-called great powers at the time, what I just mentioned a minute ago, the Triple Entente on the one hand and the Central Powers on the other, to start to mobilize and go to war against each other. This would be the first all-out, all-great-power war that Europe had seen since the final defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte 99 years earlier. And while Britain did not jump into the fight immediately, they took a few days until the leadership of the British government that wanted to go to war with Germany for kind of any reason seized upon the excuse of the German invasion of Belgium, you know, as their justification for going to war against Germany. Not the real reason, but the justification. So the British didn't jump in right away, I'm trying to remember, I think it was maybe August 4th, something like that, that the British declared war, and so that signaled, you know, the last of the five great powers were in the fight. So in other words, by the end of the first week of August 1914, the Great War was 100% on in Europe. By then, all five of the so-called great powers of the time were in the fight, along with a variety of other smaller countries And more countries, again, small, medium, and large in size and power, would continue to jump into the fight over the next few years, including the United States in the spring of 1917. Historian H.W. Brands says of Wilson's knowledge and experience of foreign policy around the time that he was elected to the presidency in 1912 that Wilson was, quote, about as innocent on the subject as a man could be and still consider himself educated. The simple fact of the matter was that Wilson had almost no interest in foreign countries and the people who lived there, quote. Now, you may recall me mentioning earlier in the Wilson series a pretty famous Wilson quote, one which I believe has shown up in every single biography of Wilson that I've ever read and the quote is when he said to a friend right around the time of his election to the presidency in 1912, quote, it would be the irony of fate if my administration had to deal chiefly with foreign affairs, for all my preparation has been in domestic matters, end quote. And that was very much true. Wilson, I think, was being quite honest with that statement. Even setting aside his formal studies. And just looking at his personal experience, Wilson had not traveled extensively before becoming president. And almost all of the international travels that he had done had been to the British Isles. He'd visited the UK a bunch of times over the course of his academic career, but he had only gone to continental Europe one time. And he had never visited any continents other than North America and Europe. And I can tell you from reading a lot of his academic work that he was mostly ignorant of the history of the world other than that of America, the British Isles, and to a lesser extent, other parts of Northern and Western Europe. He knew almost nothing even of Eastern European history, let alone the history of Asia or Africa or anywhere else. And yet, this guy would have the hubris to think that he and his minions of progressive lackeys could use the opportunity of this great war to play God with the world, to remove and replace governments and redraw the borders of nations in Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and even parts of Asia. Now, gee whiz, what could possibly go wrong with arrogant, ignorant people playing God with other people in other parts of the world far flung, you know, away from them, whose history and culture and religion and rivalries and hatreds and so forth, they don't even remotely begin to understand. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I mean, the answer is almost endless. It's World War II, the rise of fascism, the rise of communism, the Cold War, a lot of the problems in the Middle East, so many of these things can be traced back to Woodrow Wilson's decision to get the U.S. into World War I, and then how he, in conjunction with the other victorious allies, handled the end of that war. That's what could go wrong. Now, By the time World War I broke out in Europe, Wilson was already starting to intervene a fair amount in Latin America. But again, I am still planning on and working on covering all of that stuff in a standalone episode on Wilson's Banana Wars for DHP supporters on places like Patreon and Subscribestar. And actually, to be honest, at this point, I'm thinking that I'm probably going to break that bonus coverage of Wilson's Banana Wars in Latin America and the Caribbean into two parts. Because, like with this episode here, you know, what I initially intended to be one big episode is just getting so long and complex and unwieldy that I'm going to have to break it up in order to make it manageable for me to actually make, and in order to make it hopefully a little bit more digestible for you all to consume. But the point is... Wilson was already on the path increasingly of liberal interventionism or neoliberal war hawkishness even before World War I. He was already starting to show himself quite willing and eager to engage in military interventions abroad as long as there was some sort of humanitarian liberal sounding justification for it. Wilson, like many people around the world seems to have been surprised by the Great War breaking out and it beginning to play out the way it did in the early phases. You know, it was a war that very few people predicted what it would be like, how long it would last, etc. And because of him being a little bit taken off guard by the whole thing, and because of his general ignorance and inexperience in regard to foreign affairs that I already mentioned a few minutes ago, He seems to have initially been very unsure as to exactly how the U.S. should react to it and, you know, very much had no idea how long the war would last and what it would really be like. Again, this was the first full-on war between alliances that included all of the great powers of Europe in 99 years since the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815. And you don't need a history degree to know that to say that a lot had changed in those 99 years is a massive understatement. A lot had changed. It was a totally different world in Europe in 1914 as opposed to 1815. First off, in 1815, most countries in Europe hadn't really industrialized yet. By 1914, a lot more nations in Europe had gone through an industrial revolution of some sort. But other things had changed besides just technology. I mean, that was important. But in addition, you had a huge amount of progress in those 99 years in the development of modern centralized Leviathan nation states with highly effective modern propaganda techniques and organizations and just the overall kind of organizational software for doing things like mobilizing people and resources for war. Those things were far more developed and effective in 1914 than they had been in the early 1800s. And then on top of that, you had all the massive improvements in the effectiveness of things like weapons and transportation technologies for war than had existed in the days of Napoleon. I mean, you're going from wars being primarily fought by infantrymen with smoothbore muskets and by what we would consider rather primitive and ineffective artillery in Napoleon's day to wars being fought with modern, repeating rifles and machine guns and landmines and barbed wire and poison gas and eventually even things like planes and tanks and, of course, at sea, things like underwater mines and submarines. So it was just an unprecedentedly new type of war. And yeah, you can go and and see little previews, little portents of this in some of the latter stages of the U.S. Civil War. You can see some aspects of this happening in the Franco-Prussian War. You can see some aspects of this being revealed in the Boer War in South Africa. And you can see even more aspects of what would happen in World War I being revealed in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. But none of those really, you know, put it all together and had entire alliances of great powers fighting each other directly, not in a proxy sort of way. Initially, most Americans, regardless of their politics or station in life, seemed to have reacted with thankful relief that their country was on the other side of the planet, from this giant war that was breaking out and they were equally grateful that the US was not allied to either side even the US ambassador to the UK Walter Hines Page who was a huge lover of Britain and hater of Germany since you know before this war even happened even he initially reacted to the outbreak of the war by writing quote again and ever i thank heaven for the atlantic ocean how wise our no alliance policy is end quote. now he wouldn't stick with these sentiments for very long, in fact, within just a matter of weeks at most, if not days, he was totally focused on loving Britain, hating Germany, and wanting the u s to get into the war to help the Brits win over Germany. I mean, for much of the period of American quote unquote neutrality, Ambassador Page was seemingly more pro British then somebody like Bill Crystal is pro-Israel in our time. In fact, like half the time, if not more, it seems like he was doing more to try and work for the British government from 1914 to 1917 than he was for the American government. And you see a lot of this, where people who would become, very quickly, extremely loud, bloodthirsty voices of pro-British, anti-German, pro-U.S. intervention sentiment many of them, in the initial days and sometimes even weeks after the war broke out, expressed what I would consider quite reasonable sentiments, which is, it's a tragedy that this giant Great Power War is happening in Europe, thankfully America's not involved, and the best thing we can do, both for ourselves and for the rest of the world as Americans, is to try to stay the hell out of it. Arch Warhawk Anglophile and Teutonophobe Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, great warmonger buddy of Teddy Roosevelt. He also expressed a desire, in the early days of the war, for the U.S. to remain neutral and to remain impartial and stay the hell out. And while Page, Lodge, and men like them may have abandoned these sentiments very quickly, if they ever sincerely held them in the first place, of course, many Americans would hang on to these sentiments of, thank God for the Atlantic Ocean, thank God we're neutral and not allied with anybody at war. They would hang on to these sentiments for the next year or two, if not longer. So, it took Wilson a couple of weeks to kind of craft his exact response to the European War. Partly, as I've already mentioned, because he was caught by surprise by the outbreak of the war, and overall he was just not prepared to make European diplomacy a high priority. But also, partly because his first wife had died just a few days before the war broke out and this threw Wilson into a very severe grief-fueled depression for months. But within a few weeks of the outbreak of the war, Wilson would officially declare that the U.S. would follow a policy of neutrality, which was a popular move with the overwhelming majority of Americans at the time. He also seems to have initially believed, for the most part, that Uh, neutrality policy would be best, not just because it was the politically popular move at the time, but also because he thought that neutrality would give the U.S. legitimacy in the eyes of all the belligerents, and therefore would give the U.S., and him as president of it, of course, the dominant influence over any peace negotiations that would end this war. And Wilson very much wanted to be the dominant individual in remaking the world in his preferred image once the war was over. Now later, of course, as we'll see, he's going to change his mind, and he's going to kind of flip it around and decide that only by picking sides, with the Allies, of course, for whom he was always biased, especially towards the British, that only by picking sides and helping that side win the war in a dominant fashion would the U.S. and himself be able to be the dominant force in shaping the post-war world order. Now, we'll get to Wilson's first big kind of elaborated statement on neutrality, which came a few weeks into the war. But first, I'll just mention he did make a proclamation of neutrality on August 4th, when the war had only been rolling for about one week. And so I'm going to share with you some excerpts from that proclamation. Quote, Whereas a state of war unhappily exists between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, and between Germany and France, and between Germany and Russia, and whereas the United States is on terms of friendship and amity with the contending powers and with the persons inhabiting their several dominions, and whereas the laws and treaties of the United States, without interfering with the free expression of opinion and sympathy, or with the commercial manufacture or sale of arms or munitions of war, nevertheless impose upon all persons who may be within their territory and jurisdiction the duty of an impartial neutrality during the existence of the contest. And whereas it is the duty of a neutral government not to permit or suffer the making of its waters subservient to the purposes of war, now therefore I, Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States of America, in order to preserve the neutrality of the United States and of its citizens and of persons within its territory and jurisdiction, and to enforce its laws and treaties, and in order that all persons, being warned of the general tenor of the laws and treaties of the United States in this behalf, and of the law of nations, may thus be prevented from any violation of the same, do hereby declare and proclaim that by certain provisions of the act approved on the 4th day of March, 80, 1909, commonly known as the Penal Code of the United States, the following acts are forbidden to be done under severe penalties within the territory and jurisdictions of the United States. To wit, end quote. And the proclamation then goes on to list, in a very dry and legalistic fashion, various non-neutral actions that Americans would, by law, not be allowed to engage in. And after this list, the proclamation then continues, And I do further declare and proclaim that the statutes and the treaties of the United States and the law of nations alike require that no person within the territory and jurisdiction of the United States shall take part, directly or indirectly, in the said wars, but shall remain at peace with all of the said belligerents, and shall maintain a strict and impartial neutrality, and I do hereby enjoin all citizens of the United States, and all persons residing or being within the territory or jurisdiction of the United States, to observe the laws thereof, and to commit no act contrary to the provisions of the said statutes or treaties, or in violation of the law of nations in that behalf." and I do hereby warn all citizens of the United States and all persons residing or being within the territory or jurisdiction, that, while the free and full expression of sympathies, in public and private, is not restricted by the laws of the United States, military forces in aid of a belligerent cannot lawfully be originated or organized within its jurisdiction. And that while all persons may lawfully and without restriction, by reason of the aforesaid state of war, manufacture and sell within the United States arms and munitions of war and other articles ordinarily known as contraband of war, yet they cannot carry such articles upon the high seas for the use or service of a belligerent, nor can they transport soldiers and officers of a belligerent or attempt to break any blockade which may be lawfully established and maintained during the said wars, without incurring the risk of hostile capture and the penalties denounced by the law of nations in that behalf." Quote. So quite reasonable at this point in time anyway, he's trying to prevent Americans from getting involved in the conflict, even indirectly, in any way that might raise the danger of the nation as a whole getting sucked into the war. Back to the proclamation, quote, And I do hereby give notice that all citizens of the United States and others who may claim the protection of this government, who may misconduct themselves in the premises, will do so at their peril, and that they can in no wise obtain any protection from the government of the United States against the consequences of their misconduct, end quote so that not only are Americans liable to potentially getting punished by American law and international law, should they try to get involved in the war in some fashion, but also that if Americans want to, you know, poke their nose into someone else's wars, and they get in trouble, let's say, with the authorities of one of the belligerent nations, that the U.S. government is not going to do anything to try and protect them From those consequences of their actions. Now, if Wilson had actually stuck by those sentiments and the sentiments he expressed publicly in most instances for the next several months, the US would have stayed genuinely neutral and therefore would have stayed out of the war. However, it's not going to be long until Wilson starts to backtrack on much of what he said in that proclamation of neutrality. And it's ultimately going to get to the point where Wilson is going to argue that American citizens who choose to travel on ships of a belligerent nation in the war and who travel on those ships into active war zones and on ships that are actually armed in some fashion, that those Americans still should be protected by the U.S. government and That should an American, let's say, for example, there's an American citizen on a British merchant ship or passenger liner ship. And let's say that British ship is even carrying war contraband materials, is carrying ammunition from the US bound for Europe. And let's say even that that British ship is armed and is under orders to try to destroy any U-boats it encounters. Wilson is ultimately going to take the stance that Germany has no right, German submarines have no right to try to take out that British ship under these circumstances, and that, in fact, Americans have the right to travel on foreign belligerent ships that are armed and carrying contraband and that are going into declared active war zones, like, for example, the North Sea. That they have the right to be free from any risk of death or injury by German naval actions. And that should any Americans die under those circumstances, that it is a crime attributable to the German government and shows how evil and barbaric they are. Wilson is also going to, before long, start to make various policy changes that would actively encourage, enable, and facilitate Financial and material support from the U.S. private sector for the benefit of the allied governments that were engaged in the war. So in other words, the U.S. government is going to go beyond even just like taking a hands off approach to say American banks lending money to the governments of Britain and France and Russia or American manufacturers selling weapons and ammunition to the governments of Britain, France and Russia. Not only is the U.S. going to be hands off with that before long, but they're going to be in various ways actively encouraging and facilitating that business. And I'll bring this up again, I'm sure. But, you know, how does that look from the perspective of the German government and even the German people? That the U.S. government is, you know, won't shut up about how neutral they are and how therefore, boo boo, Germany, you can't mess with us. And yet, at the same time, the U.S. government is actively facilitating and encouraging U.S. businesses to finance and supply all of Germany's enemies in the war. How neutral is that? A few weeks later, on August 19th, 1914, Wilson spoke to the Congress for the first time on the subject of the war in Europe and what he thought the role and relation of the United States to the conflict should be, saying, quote, My fellow countrymen, I suppose that every thoughtful man in America has asked himself during these last troubled weeks what influence the European war may exert upon the United States, and I take the liberty of addressing a few words to you in order to point out that it is entirely within our own choice what its effects upon us will be, and to urge very earnestly upon you the sort of speech and conduct which will best safeguard the nation against distress and disaster. The effect of the war upon the United States will depend upon what American citizens say and do. Every man who really loves America will act and speak in the true spirit of neutrality which is the spirit of impartiality and fairness and friendliness to all concerned, end quote. Now, that line is key in so many ways, in my opinion. It harkens back to the content and spirit of key passages in George Washington's farewell address, and it also harkens back to statements by Thomas Jefferson and several other key founding fathers advocating for the United States to stay the hell out of Europe's wars and problems. And again, had Wilson truly meant this when he said it and continued to mean it for the next several years, the U.S. would have stayed the hell out of World War I, and both the U.S. and the planet would have been better off for it. Instead, in very little time, Wilson is going to completely go back on these sorts of statements. And in fact, by the time the U.S. gets into the war officially, it's going to be at the point where, you know, the government, uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1914 is saying it's the duty of Americans, if they love their country, to stay neutral, not just in deed, but even in thought. But after the U.S. gets into the war in 1917... And censorship and propaganda are in full effect. The message is going to go from it's every patriotic American's duty to be basically an America firster and to not pick sides in the European war. It's going to flip to if you're not actively hardcore pro Britain and pro France, you must be an evil traitor who loves the Kaiser. And you certainly cannot be a patriotic American if you don't also love Britain and France. And in fact, just to give you one example of this, once the U.S. is in the war, there was a movie made by Hollywood during World War I called The Spirit of 76. And it was a movie about the American Revolution. And the U.S. government censored it. They shit the movie, didn't allow it to be you know, fully released, even though it was made. Now think about that. In the name of patriotism, the U.S. government is banning a movie about the American Revolution. I mean, that's just Orwellian as all get-out. But aside from that, it shows you what's going on. Because why on earth would the government be interested in censoring a movie about the American Revolution during World War I? Well, from the American perspective, who are the quote-unquote bad guys during the American Revolution? The British. The very same government that in 1917 Americans were told is like, you know, right up there with the U.S. government in terms of its excellence and nobility and superiority, and that it's fighting on the side of democracy and human rights and civilization and all that's good. So it certainly wouldn't do for people to be reminded that, hey, you know, back in uh, the 1770s and 80s, uh, we were actually fighting the Brits. So yeah, it goes from If you pick sides in World War I, you can't be a patriotic American too. You have to pick sides and you have to pick this side in World War I or you're not a patriotic American. So back to Wilson's speech. Quote, The spirit of the nation in this critical matter will be determined largely by what individuals and society and those gathered in public meetings do and say upon what newspapers and magazines contain upon what ministers utter in their pulpits and men proclaim as their opinions on the street. The people of the United States are drawn from many nations, and chiefly from the nations now at war. It is natural and inevitable that there should be the utmost variety of sympathy and desire among them with regard to the issues and circumstances of the conflict. Some will wish one nation, others another, to succeed in the momentous struggle. It will be easy to excite passion and difficult to allay it. Those responsible for exciting it will assume a heavy responsibility. Responsibility for no less a thing than that the people of the United States, whose love of their country and whose loyalty to its government, should unite them as Americans all. Bound in honor and affection to think first of her and her interests, may be divided in camps of hostile opinion hot against each other, involved in the war itself in impulse and opinion, if not in action. Such divisions among us would be fatal to our peace of mind and might seriously stand in the way of the proper performance of our duty as the one great nation at peace, the one people holding itself ready to play a part of impartial mediation and speak the councils of peace and accommodation, not as a partisan but as a friend, end quote. And again, if Wilson had stuck by these sorts of sentiments, I would have a much higher opinion of him, for whatever that's worth. And the U.S. and the world would have been better off. I think he was right, and William Jennings Bryan, who also thought this was right, although Wilson stopped listening to him soon, if he ever did, that The most helpful thing the U.S. could have done in regards to World War I is to stay out of it. And if to be involved in it in any way, it would be to try to act as a genuinely neutral arbiter, to try and broker a peace. But the thing is, you can't do that effectively after you've picked sides. Back to Wilson, quote, I venture, therefore, my fellow countrymen, to speak a solemn word of warning to you against that deepest, most subtle, most essential breach of neutrality, which may spring out of partisanship, out of passionately taking sides. The United States must be neutral in fact as well as in name during these days that are to try men's souls. We must be impartial in thought as well as in action must put a curb upon our sentiments as well as upon every transaction that might be construed as a preference of one party to the struggle before another. My thought is of America. I am speaking, I feel sure the earnest wish and purpose of every thoughtful American that this great country of ours, which is of course the first in our thoughts and in our hearts, should show herself in this time of peculiar trial, a nation fit beyond others to exhibit the fine poise of undisturbed judgment, the dignity of self-control, the efficiency of dispassionate action, a nation that neither sits in judgment upon others nor is disturbed in her own counsels and which keeps herself fit and free to do what is honest and disinterested and truly serviceable for the peace of the world. Shall we not resolve to put upon ourselves the restraints which will bring to our people the happiness and the great and lasting influence for peace we covet for them? End quote. This speech is easily one of the best, possibly the best speeches, in my opinion. Of Wilson's entire career. If, of course, you just take the words at face value while ignoring all of his subsequent actions that give lie to it. Now, most of you probably already know, and I certainly do, that Wilson would ultimately choose sides and play favorites before long, in fact, pretty quickly, long before the U.S. officially would enter the war in April of 1917. But that said, I'll give the devil his due here. I've come to the conclusion, given my countless hours of reading about Wilson and reading Wilson's word and reading Wilson's words at this point, that he actually at least mostly meant it at the time that he gave the speech that I just shared with you. Now he was clearly conflicted, contradictory, ambivalent on the issue as some of his off-the-record statements, even during the first year of the war, seem to indicate. So I'm not saying that there was no part of his brain that was sympathetic to the Allies, especially the British, from day one and against the Germans. But I think the majority of his mind did at least initially believe in the sentiments that he expressed in that speech. And in comparing Wilson to FDR, who will be, of course, the next president that would be confronted with a world war, who will initially publicly advocate neutrality, but who will quickly and unofficially pick sides and who ultimately will maneuver the country into the war, I think that despite his ambivalence, Wilson still mostly genuinely meant it, at least initially and for a little while, when he said, that he wanted the U.S. to be truly neutral and to stay out of the war. I do think he certainly abandoned those beliefs and those intentions well before April of 1917, which is when he's finally going to ask the Congress for a declaration of war. When exactly he stopped really meaning it at all when speaking about neutrality, I'm really not certain. It may be impossible to know with any precision without some kind of like magical or sci-fi way of retroactively reading the mind of a man who's been dead for nearly a century. But I do think that Wilson had fully abandoned any genuine desire or intention for neutrality well before the spring of 1917, and I also firmly believe that Wilson had abandoned any belief in and desire for neutrality for the U.S. well before the presidential campaign of 1916 kicked off. By the way, that's the campaign where Wilson got reelected, and his main campaign slogan was, he kept us out of war. I don't think Wilson intended to keep the U.S. out of war as of that time either. So I think Wilson probably meant it when he said he wanted to be neutral and stay out of the war in August of 1914. I think he had probably abandoned that, though, within about a year, meaning the summer of 1915. After the sinking of Lusitania. But where exactly during that first year of the war did he abandon his desire of neutrality? As of this recording, anyway, I can't pinpoint it. But definitely, I would argue, sometime between the summer of 1914 and the summer of 1915. I think Wilson had, you know, regardless of his public statements to the contrary, I think Wilson had pretty much decided that he would ultimately get the U.S. into the war on the side of the British and French, but that for political reasons, he would keep his public statements mostly sounding like his August 1914 statements until after he had been reelected in the 1916 campaign. Now, if I'm right, all of this means that Wilson was continuously and blatantly lying to the American people about his stance on the war and his intentions with the war for at least a year, if not closer to two. And by the way, there is absolutely no doubt that Wilson was perfectly capable of and fine with lying to the American people on matters of foreign policy. How can I say that we know this without a doubt? Well, because in November of 1914, November of 1914, right, the war had only been going on for, what, three, four months. Colonel House, Wilson's closest friend and advisor at the time, wrote in his diary that Wilson had confided to him that he, meaning Wilson, had no issues or qualms with lying to the press, and by extension with lying to the American people, about matters of foreign policy. I mean, he flat out said so to House in private. There's also every reason to believe that even if he kind of meant it about neutrality, that Wilson, nonetheless, was strongly inclined to the British side of the war from the very beginning. And if so, that means that even if he kind of mostly meant it when he said he wanted neutrality early on, there was still some genuine conflict within him. So, for example, on August 19th, 1914, the exact same day as his first big speech on neutrality that I shared pieces of just a few minutes ago, Wilson wrote to Lord Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, that the U.S. and the U.K. were, quote, bound together by common principle and purpose, end quote. And also, this early on, Wilson revealed a belief in some sort of a domino theory regarding a potential German victory in this war. By which I mean the belief that if the Central Powers won, eventually and inevitably the U.S. would have to take on Germany and... Wilson expressed some concern that this would lead to increased authoritarianism in the U.S. Now, ironically, him getting the U.S. into the war to ensure the Allies would win would actually result in the largest spike in authoritarianism in American history up until that point. But for sure, like Teddy Roosevelt, like Henry Cabot Lodge, like Alfred Thayer Mahan, like Colonel House... Wilson definitely believed in this Anglo-Saxonist idea, this idea of the natural affinity of the English-speaking peoples of the world, and believed in the superiority of the Anglo-Saxons over all other quote-unquote races, including the German quote-unquote race, from which actually the Anglo-Saxons largely derived. But the main difference was that Wilson was a little bit more subtle, usually in expressing these Anglo-Saxonist tendencies than somebody like Teddy Roosevelt would be or somebody like Henry Cabot Lodge would be. So the point is that while Wilson, in the very early weeks and months of the war, might have largely been genuine when he said he wanted to keep the U.S. out of the war, he still nonetheless had a real emotional attachment to one side, and in particular one country, Great Britain, And so that alone made it very likely that if it looked like that side, that country, couldn't win the war without U.S. help, Wilson would be very inclined to get the U.S. into the war, to make sure they won. Of course, a big part of influencing both Wilson's thinking, as well as large portions of the American people, would be British propaganda in the U.S., which I covered a while back in that DHP episode I already referred to earlier, which was episode 236. And again, I'll throw a link to that episode in the show notes for this episode in case you've never listened to it or it's been a while, because again, it's a great companion to this episode. It covers a bit more detail on the outbreak of the war, and it covers in much more detail the British propaganda operations in the U.S. from 1914 to 1917 And it also hits upon a bit the real story, the truth, about the sinking of Lusitania and the context in which it happened, what was going on on the high seas, and the ways in which not only the Germans, but also the British, and the British started it, were breaking existing international law precedents by their actions on the high seas. And on the topic of the effect of British propaganda in the U.S., even as kind of mainstream and establishment of an historian as H.W. Brands, is still competent and intellectually honest enough to admit that, quote, Britain's propaganda agencies amplified this perception, by which he means that the Germans were the big bad guys of the war. By disseminating tales of German atrocities, the spurious nature of some of the stories eventually came out but not before they accomplished their purpose, end quote. And keep in mind that almost everybody in Wilson's cabinet and his informal circle of advisors were, to one degree or another, Anglophiles and or Teutonophobes, which Wilson himself, of course, was as well. In fact, in his cabinet, only the Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, seems not to have been heavily biased in favor of the Brits. And he was also the only one who really, really meant it 100%, and not just for a little while, when he would say things to the effect that the U.S. should not take sides in this conflict. And of course, it's for that very reason that Brian is only going to be Secretary of State until June of 1915. And I'll mention a few other key Wilson advisors and their biases regarding the war, but I also want to mention that, you know, aside from Wilson's own general anglophilia and the fact that most of his top advisors and cabinet secretaries were anglophiles as well, and aside from the effects of British propaganda over the course of the war, I think that another big factor that nudged Wilson in the direction of eventually getting into the war on the side of the Allies. First was his overall tendency throughout his life towards kind of a totalist, Manichaean, pure black-and-white moral worldview. And of course, under this worldview, he's always on the side of God, righteousness, progress, etc. And this is, I think, largely because of the influence of his father whom you may remember was a leading Presbyterian pastor and theologian in the American South in the 19th century. And Woodrow Wilson himself had displayed this tendency towards Manichaeanism throughout his life. You may recall me in a previous episode a while back in this series, mentioning Wilson's essay entitled Christ's Army, which he wrote when he was only 19 years old and which was published in a journal called The Presbyterian, which was a publication that his father was the editor of at the time. And in this essay, young Tommy, as Woodrow was then called, you know, Thomas being his legal first name, uh, young Tommy would say things like this, quote, Mankind is as divided into two great armies. The field of battle is the world. From the abodes of righteousness advance the host of God's people under the leadership of Christ. From the opposite side of the field, advancing from the tents of wickedness, come the hosts of sin, led by the Prince of Lies himself, riding upon death's horse. Behind him, a mighty army, marshaled by fiends under the dark banners of iniquity. The object of the warfare on the part of the first is to gain glory for their great leader as well as the best good of the conquered by persuading them to leave the ranks of the evil one and enlist under the great redeemer, that of the other to entice as many as will listen to them, to go with them by the alluring paths of worldliness to everlasting destruction. The foes meet upon the great battlefield of everyday life, Surely, in this great contest, there is a part for every one, and each one will be made to render a strict account of his conduct on the day of battle. Will anyone hesitate as to the part he shall take in this conflict? Will anyone dare to enlist under the banner of the Prince of Lies, under whose dark folds he only marches to the darkness of hell? For there is no middle course, no neutrality, End quote. No middle course, no neutrality. This is Wilson at 19 years old. You have to pick a side. There's pure good, pure evil. There's no staying out of it. There's no neutral. If you try to stay out of it by de facto, you're serving the forces of darkness. This is the mindset that he is going to manifest and that he is going to implement once the U.S. is in the war. This totalist, Manichaean mindset with no room for complexity, ambiguity, moral gray areas, no capacity to say, well, both sides are to blame to some extent. Both sides have done things they shouldn't have. No. It's one side has to be pure good, one side has to be pure evil, and Once you identify the side of good, anyone who's not actively helping you in that endeavor is, by definition, aiding the dark side. Back to 19-year-old Tommy Wilson. Quote, Each and every one must enlist either with the followers of Christ or those of Satan. You know your enemies. They are evil thoughts, evil desires, evil associations. Avoid evil associations. Evil companions. No one can make a good soldier who keeps company with the emissaries and friends of the enemy. In every minor thing, watch yourself and let no fiery dart enter your soul. One who thus faithfully does his duty and purifies himself in the smallest things has little to fear from the foe, and if he withal leads others by his example and precept to do likewise, and fears not to warn the enemies of the cross to turn from the error of their ways. He may rest assured that his name is enrolled among the soldiers of the cross." End quote. So this manichean tendency of mind on the part of Wilson, once enough British and also Anglophilic American propaganda convinced Wilson that the Central Powers side of the war, and especially Germany, was evil. And that the Allied side were the good guys and were on the right side of history, so to speak. That meant that neutrality was no longer even an option. That to try to stay neutral was essentially to, by default, aid the forces of darkness. And then related to this, Another big thing, kind of psychologically, that I think would help nudge Wilson towards his ultimate intervention in World War I was his hubristic messiah complex. He seems to have genuinely, fervently believed that the U.S. had the divinely appointed mission to remake the entire world by spreading what he called modern democracy. And ultimately, by creating something like a world government, or as he would come to call it eventually, the League of Nations. And he genuinely believed that he was the divinely appointed politician who needed to carry this out. Now, like I said earlier, for a while at least, he seems to have believed that by keeping the U.S. out of the war and keeping the U.S. neutral, he was doing the best thing that he could to enable the U.S., under his divinely ordained leadership, of course, to be the primary shaper of the peace tree that would end the war and set up the post-war world order. But again, sometime between the summer of 1914 and the spring of 1917, and I think it was closer to the former than to the latter in time, he changed his mind about that and decided that, in fact, the only way that he, as the Messianic leader of the Messianic nation— could be the dominant influence on how the war ended and how the world, you know, would be set up from then on, would be to get the U.S. into the war on the winning side, which would then give him the leverage to shape the end of the war and what would come after it. So, like I said before, Wilson's cabinet at the start of World War I was almost unanimously pro-Entente, pro-Allied, and especially pro-British. Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan was really the only exception. If Wilson had genuinely, wholeheartedly agreed with Bryan, he would have treated both sides in the war equally. And he would have condemned and opposed British violations of international law and interventions into American politics and so forth, at least as strongly as he did those of the Germans. And he would have stayed out of the conflict, other than maybe to offer, like I said before, to mediate it as a neutral broker. Quite simply, the U.S. and the world would have been better off if Wilson had actually listened to his Secretary of State about foreign policy. But in reality, during the first year of World War I, he listened to his own Secretary of State less than almost anyone else in the administration on foreign policy. Instead, his two main advisors on foreign policy were, first and foremost, Colonel, in quote marks, Edward House, whom you may remember had no official title or office in the administration. And House really functionally was Wilson's Secretary of State. And House, as the son of an English immigrant to the U.S., and as a guy who maintained throughout his life tons of close ties to British political and financial elites, and who spent a lot of his life abroad in the U.K., House, if anything, was even more instinctively pro British in his prejudices than Wilson was. And the evidence indicates that House came around to favoring outright US intervention into the war well before even Wilson came around to that point of view. I won't delve super deeply into House's background here, mainly because I've done it already in earlier episodes in the Woodrow Wilson series. But I will just point out that it was House. And not either Secretary of State Bryan, nor his successor in that role, Robert Lansing, whom Wilson would send repeatedly to Europe between 1914 and 1917. Instead, it was House that he repeatedly sent to Europe during the period of American alleged neutrality. In fact, not only did House make multiple trips to Europe during the first three years of the war, but he even made a trip to Europe shortly before the war started. In May of 1914, during which he was reporting back to Wilson that the situation in Europe was very tense and there was a strong possibility of a great power war. Now, during this 1914 trip before the war broke out, House met with leaders primarily in London. He spent a very short amount of time in Paris. I think he only met with the US ambassador, didn't even meet with any French government officials when he was in Paris. And he did go to Berlin for a little while, including a meeting with the Kaiser. Though, strangely and interestingly, House did not go to Austria, and perhaps even more interestingly and even more importantly, he didn't go to St. Petersburg to meet with the Tsar or any other Russian government officials, even though arguably Russia was the most territorial aggressive of all the great powers at the time, at least as far as European territories went. So, on this trip, House first visited Germany, where the Kaiser seems to have actually charmed House quite a bit, at least temporarily, and the Kaiser tried to convince House that the main reason for Germany's military buildup in recent years was simply that it was surrounded by hostile powers, which in fact it was. After Germany, like I said, House very briefly stopped off in France, Where the only high level meeting he had was with the US ambassador there. And then he went on to London where he spent a lot more time. And there his anglophilic prejudices were strongly reinforced. Because there, in the words of historian Stuart Halsey Ross, quote, far sighted English knights and lords exquisitely dined and thoroughly brainwashed their receptive guest. End quote. In other words, after visiting London, house's pro-british prejudices would be fully reinforced and any tendency in his mind to want to take germany's point of view even just you know to take it seriously not even to agree with it but just to take it seriously and take it into account or to even want to act as a true neutral objective mediator would seemingly go out the window after meeting with house the British Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Lord Gray, would write, quote, House left me in no doubt from the first that he held German militarism responsible for the war and that he regarded the struggle as one between democracy and something that was undemocratic and antipathetic to American ideals. I felt sure he did not differ much from Ambassador Page in his view of the merits of the war" end quote. and again ambassador page walter hines page the us ambassador to the uk at the time was one of the most vehement americans in terms of supporting britain and opposing germany by the way i'll briefly mention the other key ambassador at the time for the us government was of course the ambassador to germany which was James Watson Gerard, whom I believe I've mentioned before in the Wilson series. And he was a terrible choice to be the American ambassador to Germany, even under the best of circumstances, let alone in the midst of a giant war involving Germany. Even the mostly pro-Wilson historian Arthur Link calls the choice of Gerard for the U.S. ambassadorship to Germany, quote, an authentic international catastrophe, end quote. Gerard was an attorney, a judge, and a high-level Democratic Party operative from New York with ties to the Tammany Hall political machine. Not only was he almost entirely inexperienced and ignorant in matters of international diplomacy, but he was bitterly and openly hostile from the get-go, towards germany and the german government with whom he was now supposed to conduct diplomacy and no one in the wilson administration seems to have thought that these two ambassadors the u.s ambassador to the uk and the u.s ambassador to germany might be a problem now that there was a war going on between britain and germany that ostensibly the u.s was trying to keep out of they didn't think it was an issue that you know the u.s a government supposedly trying to be neutral in this conflict, that it had men like this as its two most important ambassadors at the time. That they had an ambassador to the UK, who was extremely biased in favor of the UK and against Germany, and then they also had an ambassador to Germany, who was also extremely favorable to the British and extremely Teutonophobic. No one thought that that might contribute to, I don't know, sabotaging any possibility of the U.S. government being genuinely neutral towards the conflict. No one seems to have thought that it might contribute to something like double standards, that when the British broke the rules or violated American rights, they would be treated much more softly than when the Germans did the same sorts of things. And I'm not trying to say that the choice of ambassadors to the UK and Germany are the only reason. Obviously, House played into it. Obviously, Wilson's own, you know, prejudices since he was a very young man played into it. But still, this is just, you know, Wilson's speeches about neutrality sound great to my ears. But if you look at a lot of the actions of his administration, even in those early days, including his choice of personnel, it is not what you would do. If you were genuinely trying your utmost to be neutral and stay out of the conflict. Well, anyway, House was still in London at the end of that visit that he made before the war when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. House's supposed goal in making the trip was to try to act as a mediator to prevent an outbreak of war among the great powers. Obviously, he failed in that regard but he would return to Europe multiple times between 1914 and 1917. And as early as his second trip to Europe during the war, which took place in early 1915, Howe seems to have already just completely given up on the notion of American neutrality and seems to have largely, in terms of his own mental state and intentions, have fully lined up with the British side of the war. Now, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, Wilson's other top advisor on foreign policy would be Robert Lansing. And I honestly don't recall if I've mentioned him yet in the Woodrow Wilson series or not. I might have mentioned him briefly in passing. But I'll take a moment here to dig into him a bit, just because he's definitely going to be pretty prominent in this episode and probably in at least a few more upcoming episodes in the Wilson series. Now, Lansing was to some degree for sure an Anglophile, definitely instinctively pro-British and pro-Allied and anti-German, but he wasn't quite as much of an Anglophile as, say, somebody like Colonel House. With House, one gets the impression that, at least most of the time, he was a UK firster in the same way that modern-day neocons are typically Israel firsters. Lansing strikes me as sort of like a John Bolton of his time. He's not exactly a neocon, though he lines up with them on things more often than not on specific issues. But just as I don't believe that Bolton is really an Israel first guy, and I think that Bolton in his own mind is an America firster, as he would define it, nonetheless, in practice... He often lines up with the neocons. Well, same thing with Lansing in regard to the really hardcore Anglophiles. And just as no doubt John Bolton would argue and probably would genuinely believe that being in favor of interventionism is putting America first, though obviously I would not agree with that, but I believe that Lansing also, in his own mind, was putting America first. It's just that his notion of putting America first was an aggressive, militaristic, interventionist foreign policy with a strong dose of pro-big-business corporatism kind of lurking behind it all. In other words, like John Bolton, Robert Lansing was an ultra-nationalistic jingo, above all else. And he wouldn't necessarily believe in all of the just blank-check, pro-British sympathies of somebody like House or somebody like Page. And he also didn't share the multilateralist internationalist instincts of House, or of Wilson himself for that matter. In terms of contemporaries, on foreign policy he was probably actually closer to TR than he was to Wilson. On foreign policy, even though on domestic policy I think Lansing, from what I can tell, was far more conservative than the corporatist progressivism of either Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson. Maybe an even more kind of similar guy to Lansing, other than T.R., maybe even more so than T.R., would be Henry Cabot Lodge, because both Lansing and Lodge were aggressive hawks and ultra-nationalists in foreign policy. Both of them had blue-blooded lineages that went all the way back to early colonial New England, and both of them, while being more conservative on domestic issues, lined up on foreign policy with the more Warhawk side of progressivism at the time. And Lansing is pretty important to this story because from 1914 to 1915, like I said, he was probably second only to House in influencing Wilson's thinking about foreign policy. And he's also, of course, very important because after Brian will resign in 1915, in the aftermath of the Lusitania, Lansing is going to get a promotion and is going to become Brian's replacement as Secretary of State. And he will hold that position all the way right up into 1920. So for most of Wilson's presidency, Lansing was his Secretary of State. So who was he? Well, he was born in upstate New York during the Civil War so he was just a handful of years younger than Wilson. He was from a fairly wealthy and powerful aristocratic family, with some pretty deep roots going all the way back to the early colonial period, as I said. And among his ancestors were Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams, as well as various other early colonial leaders of Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Lansing attended Amherst College and became a lawyer and started off working at his family's firm. Isn't that convenient? A firm called Lansing and Lansing. In 1890, Lansing married the daughter of a man named John W. Foster, who had been the U.S. minister to Mexico, to Russia, and to Spain, and who just a few years after Lansing married his daughter would become Secretary of State. For a couple of years in the 1890s under President Benjamin Harrison. Now, as many of you may have already guessed when you heard the last name Foster, by marrying John Foster's daughter, Eleanor, Robert Lansing was in fact marrying into the family that contained the Dulles brothers, who at the time Lansing married Eleanor Foster, they were only young boys. But just as a reminder, in case you may have forgotten, Or if you're new to Dangerous History and don't yet know, under Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s, John Foster Dulles would serve as Secretary of State and Alan Dulles would serve as CIA Director. Alan Dulles, by the way, would continue to hold that position into the early months of the JFK administration, though JFK fired him after the disaster of the Bay of Pigs. And weirdly enough, after Kennedy's assassination, Alan Dulles was appointed to be one of the Warren commissioners that were supposedly investigating the assassination. And if you think that it's kind of weird and fishy for a guy who had a lot of recent bad blood with JFK, and who JFK had fired just a couple of years earlier, if you think it's really weird that that guy was made one of the top dudes investigating JFK's death, well, I think you're right. And stay tuned, I'm going to try um, later in November of this year to get out at least the first installment in my upcoming miniseries on the JFK assassination. So, you may recall me in previous discussions of the Dulles brothers on this podcast mentioning that they came from a very highly pedigreed family that included both a grandfather and an uncle who had been secretaries of state. Well, the grandfather in question was John W. Foster, and the uncle in question was our man Robert Lansing. Like the Dulles brothers later, Lansing's background consisted of kind of going back and forth through the revolving door between working as a lawyer for major corporations, usually with a focus on international dealings, and also sometimes working as a lawyer for the U.S. government. Lansing... Unlike his father-in-law, John Foster, or unlike his nephews, John Foster and Alan Dulles, who were all Republicans, Lansing was a Democrat. And like I alluded to before, on domestic issues, he seems to have been basically a conservative, Grover-Cleveland-style Democrat on most matters, meaning really not much of a progressive at all though I think he definitely seems to have had some corporatist tendencies that may have clashed with a really consistent laissez-faire approach. But on foreign policy, it seems that unfortunately, Lansing was very much not a Cleveland-style Democrat, meaning not an anti-interventionist on foreign policy. And as Murray Rothbard observed very trenchantly a long time ago, unfortunately people often tend to spend the most time on or even to specialize in the things that they are the worst on, from a libertarian point of view. So Lansing, who was probably at least decent on most domestic issues, judged from a libertarian perspective, came to specialize in foreign policy on which he was pretty bad. Maybe not quite as bad as Wilson, the messianic globalist progressive, but at least bad enough that Lansing would serve Wilson For much of his presidency, though the two never got along very well personally, and they would eventually have a falling out during the Versailles Peace Conference. And that falling out seems to have been partly for personal reasons. Lansing seems to have believed that Wilson was stealing his thunder and usurping his authority as Secretary of State by choosing to attend the conference himself rather than just letting Lansing run the American delegation. And partly, also, it seems to have been that Lansing just didn't have nearly as much faith or devotion to the League of Nations idea as Wilson did. But anyway, that's a story for another time. And for now, I'll just say that in August 1914, right around the time period, the beginning of the time period covered by this episode, Wilson appointed Lansing to the position of Counselor, Of the United States Department of State, which is a high rank, roughly equivalent to an undersecretary position, but which, unlike an undersecretary position, does not require a Senate confirmation. And in that position as counselor, Lansing would be heavily involved in World War One stuff including the various violations of international law on the seas that were committed by both the British and the Germans during the period of American neutrality, as well as dealing with other American claims about neutrals' rights, and eventually to include dealing with the fallout of the Lusitania and things related to that. So this is the guy who was another key foreign policy advisor in the Wilson administration, and who would eventually become Secretary of State. So for the remainder of 1914, Wilson continued to publicly be pretty consistent in his insistence on US neutrality. Though, as I've already mentioned a few times, privately he did continue to periodically express very different and contradictory sentiments. To take just one of multiple examples I could cite, Shortly before the congressional elections in November of 1914, he told his top aide and de facto chief of staff, Joseph Tumulty that, quote, England is fighting our fight, and you may well understand that I shall not, in the present state of world affairs, place obstacles in her way, End quote. So, yeah, there was this public facade amongst most members of the Wilson administration where publicly, if it came up, you know, the issue of the war, they'd be like, oh, yeah, no question. We're totally about neutrality and peace and staying out of the war and trying to bring about a negotiated end to it and so forth. And then as soon as they were, you know, not under a spotlight in front of the public, almost all of them, it was like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, we all agree we're pro-British, right? Ha ha. Wilson made multiple public offers to try to help mediate an end to the war in the early months of it, but neither side was at all interested. Because in the early months of the war, both sides believed the war would be much shorter and less costly than it ended up being. Both sides, of course, also believed that their side would ultimately win, and both sides had extremely ambitious war aims in terms of territory and things that they were not interested in compromising on at all. Still overall, by the end of 1914, Wilson more than not seemed to want to try to keep the U.S. out of the war and to try to use that neutral status to be able to mediate an end to it. So I'm going to close out this episode with some excerpts from Wilson's 1914 State of the Union Address, in which he still sounds mostly pretty good to my ears. And in the next episode in this series, we'll pick up with the growing controversies about the war at sea, including the sinking of Lusitania and its fallout, as well as some of the ways that American financial and industrial firms profited from the war, and the way that those firms, especially if they were at all connected to the House of Morgan, were vehemently pro-British, and also the ways in which those Economic interests may have been key in nudging the American political elite towards war in order to safeguard the profits they were making from the Allies and ensure that the Allies would be in a position to pay back their massive loans to U.S. financial firms in the aftermath of the war. Next time, we'll also talk a bit about how various groups of Americans reacted to the issues of the war during the period of American quote-unquote neutrality. And this will also include some coverage of the so-called preparedness movement that popped up in the U.S. during the period of neutrality, which were various groups that were pro-intervention, but who kind of couched their pro-war stance behind a smokescreen of sort of just in case, you know, oh, we just want the U.S. to be prepared for war just in case, despite our best efforts to try and stay out of it, somebody attacks us. Of course, in reality, these people in these organizations were actively trying to push the U.S. towards war, one way or another. And by the way, they were predominantly created by, and to a large extent even composed of, elites. Of the anglophilic elites of the American corporate and political worlds. The preparedness movement, quote-unquote, was very much not a bottom-up grassroots thing originating from middle and working class, you know, average Americans. But anyway, before I close out this episode with some excerpts from Wilson's 1914 State of the Union address, I just want to say thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know it's been a long time since I did one of these, you know, big, deep research heavy historical narrative episodes. I know these types of episodes are always the most popular ones that I do. So I appreciate your patience. Those of you who have continued to financially contribute to my work, During the last few months when I've been not putting out a lot, I really appreciate your generosity and your patience. And my intention is, knock on wood, as long as no other major disasters fall on me or no other major stresses get in my way in the near future, to start ramping up my DHP output again in the coming weeks and months. So hopefully it will not be nearly as long before the next big Wilson episode or the next big historical episode as it was, you know, since the last one. Okay, so here we go. Woodrow Wilson's second annual message to Congress, aka State of the Union, December 8th, 1914, and I'm focusing on the war-related parts. The bulk of it is actually domestic issues. Quote, Our thoughts are now more of the future than of the past. While we have worked at our tasks of peace, the circumstances of the whole age have been altered by war. What chiefly strikes us now, as we look about us during these closing days of a year, which will be forever memorable in the history of the world, is that we face new tasks, have been facing them these six months, must face them in the months to come, face them without partisan feeling, like men who have forgotten everything but a common duty, and the fact that we are representatives of a great people whose thought is not of us but of what America owes to herself and to all mankind, in such circumstances as these upon which we looked, amazed and anxious. War has interrupted the means of trade not only, but also the processes of production. In Europe, it is destroying men and resources wholesale, and upon a scale unprecedented and appalling. There is reason to fear that the time is near, if it be not already at hand, when several of the countries of Europe will find it difficult to do for their people what they have hitherto been always easily able to do, many essential and fundamental things. At any rate, they will need our help and our manifold services, as they have never before needed them, and we should be ready, more fit and ready than we have ever been it is of equal consequence that the nations whom Europe has usually supplied with innumerable articles of manufacture and commerce, of which they are in constant need, and without which their economic development halts and stands still, can now get only a small part of what they formerly imported and eagerly looked to us to supply their all-but-empty markets. This is particularly true of our own neighbors, the states great and small of Central and South America. The United States, this great people for whom we speak and act, should be ready, as never before, to serve itself and to serve mankind, ready with its resources, its energies, its forces of production, and its means of distribution. It is a very practical matter, a matter of ways and means. We have the resources, but are we fully ready to use them? And if we can make ready what we have, have we the means at hand to distribute it? We are not fully ready, neither have we the means of distribution. We are willing, but we are not fully able. We have the wish to serve, and to serve greatly, generously, but we are not prepared as we should be. We are not ready to mobilize our resources at once. We are not prepared to use them immediately and at their best, without delay and without waste." So, Wilson, at this point, is mostly talking about the U.S. taking maximum advantage of Europe's need to import a lot more stuff than usual because of the war, and also the opportunities in places like Latin America to step in. And, you know, if the European countries are going to be unable to export as much to Latin America as they used to, well, Team America should step in and take up the slack. Wilson then goes on for several pages of his address talking about various domestic issues, but near the very end of the speech he comes back to foreign policy and continues by saying, quote, The other topic I shall take leave to mention goes deeper into the principles of our national life and policy. It is the subject of national defense. It cannot be discussed without first answering some very searching questions. It is said in some quarters that we are not prepared for war. What is meant by being prepared? Is it meant that we are not ready, upon brief notice, to put a nation in the field, a nation of men trained to arms? Of course we are not ready to do that. And we shall never be in time of peace so long as we retain our present political principles and institutions. And what is it that it is suggested we should be prepared to do? To defend ourselves against attack? We have always found means to do that, and shall find them whenever it is necessary, without calling our people away from their necessary tasks, to render compulsory military service in times of peace. Allow me to speak with great plainness and directness upon this great matter, and to avow my convictions with deep earnestness. I have tried to know what America is, what her people think, what they are, what they most cherish and hold dear. I hope that some of their finer passions are in my own heart, some of the great conceptions and desires which gave birth to this government, and which have made the voice of this people a voice of peace and hope and liberty among the peoples of the world, and that, speaking my own thoughts, I shall at least in part speak theirs also, however faintly and inadequately, upon this vital matter. We are at peace with all the world. No one who speaks counsel based on fact or drawn from a just and candid interpretation of realities can say that there is reason to fear that from any quarter our independence or the integrity of our territory is threatened. Dread of the power of any other nation we are incapable of. We are not jealous of rivalry in the fields of commerce or of any other peaceful achievement. We mean to live our own lives as we will, but we mean also to let live we are indeed a true friend to all the nations of the world, because we threaten none, covet the possessions of none, desire the overthrow of none. Our friendship can be accepted and is accepted without reservation, because it is offered in a spirit and for a purpose which no one need ever question or suspect. Therein lies our greatness. We are the champions of peace and of concord, and we should be very jealous of this distinction, which we have sought to earn. Just now, we should be particularly jealous of it, because it is our dearest present hope that this character and reputation may presently, in God's providence, bring us an opportunity such as seldom been vouchsafed any nation, the opportunity to counsel and obtain peace in the world and reconciliation and a healing settlement of many a matter that has cooled and interrupted the friendship of nations. This is the time, above all others, when we should wish and resolve to keep our strength by self-possession, our influence by preserving our ancient principles of action. From the First We have had a clear and settled policy with regard to military establishments. We never have had, and while we retain our present principles and ideals, we never shall have, a large standing army. If asked, are you ready to defend yourselves, we reply, most assuredly, to the utmost. And yet, we shall not turn America into a military camp. We will not ask our young men to spend the best years of their lives making soldiers of themselves. There is another sort of energy in us. It will know how to declare itself and make itself effective should occasion arise. And especially when half the world is on fire, we shall be careful to make our moral insurance against the spread of the conflagration very definite and certain and adequate indeed. Let us remind ourselves, therefore, of the only thing we can do or will do. We must depend, in every time of national peril, in the future as in the past, not upon a standing army, nor yet upon a reserve army, but upon a citizenry trained and accustomed to arms. It will be right enough, right American policy, based upon our accustomed principles and practices to provide a system by which every citizen who will volunteer for the training may be made familiar with the use of modern arms, the rudiments of drill and maneuver, and the maintenance and sanitation of camps. We should encourage such training and make it a means of discipline which our young men will learn to value. It is right that we should provide it not only but that we should make it as attractive as possible, and so induce our young men to undergo it at such times as they can command a little freedom and seek the physical development they need, for mere health's sake, if nothing more. Every means by which such things can be stimulated is legitimate, and such a method smacks of true American ideas. It is right, too, that the National Guard of the States should be developed and strengthened by every means which is not inconsistent with our obligations to our own people or with the established policy of our government. And this also, not because the time or occasion specially calls for such measures, but because it should be our constant policy to make these provisions for our national defense and safety. More than this carries with it a reversal of the whole history and character of our polity. More than this, proposed at this time, permit me to say, would mean merely that we had lost our self-possession, that we had been thrown off our balance by a war with which we have nothing to do, whose causes cannot touch us, whose very existence affords us opportunities of friendship and disinterested service, which should make us ashamed of any thought of hostility or fearful preparation for trouble." This is assuredly the opportunity for which a people and a government like ours were raised up. The opportunity not only to speak, but actually to embody and exemplify the councils of peace and amity and the lasting conquered, which is based on justice and fair and generous dealing. A powerful navy we have always regarded as our proper and natural means of defense, and it has always been of defense that we have thought Never of aggression or conquest. But who shall tell us now what sort of navy to build? We shall take leave to be strong upon the seas in the future as in the past, and there will be no thought of offense or of provocation in that. Our ships are our natural bulwarks. When will the experts tell us just what kind we should construct, and when will they be right for ten years together? if the relative efficiency of craft of different kinds and uses continues to change as we have seen it change under our very eyes in these last few months. But I turn away from the subject. It is not new. There is no new need to discuss it. We shall not alter our attitude toward it because some amongst us are nervous and excited. We shall easily and sensibly agree on a policy of defense. The question has not changed its aspects, because the times are not normal. Our policy will not be for an occasion. It will be conceived as a permanent and settled thing, which we will pursue at all seasons, without haste and after a fashion perfectly consistent with the peace of the world, the abiding friendship of states, and the unhampered freedom of all with whom we deal. Let there be no misconception. The country has been misinformed. We have not been negligent of national defense. We are not unmindful of the great responsibility resting upon us. We shall learn and profit by the lesson of every experience and every new circumstance. And what is needed will be adequately done. End quote.